Hello and welcome to Writing on the Walls. I'm your host, Rob Lavati. I'm really excited today to be joined by Dr. Doreen Marshall. Dr. Marshall is the Vice President of Mission Engagement for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, as well as a survivor of suicide loss herself. On this episode, Dr. Marshall and I talk about her experience losing her fiancé to suicide in 1995, her trajectory and career path, and how she found herself in her current position with AFSP. We discuss some of the training she has provided to various organizations on suicide prevention and awareness. We also discuss the importance of training our schools on suicide prevention as well as postvention and the toolkit that she helped to develop for schools. We talk about some of the pros and cons of social media when it comes to communicating about suicide and more broadly mental illness. And finally, we talk about how to talk to and engage someone who may be dealing with suicidal ideation or intensity. I found this to be a really helpful episode with some pretty practical and tactical takeaways that I could apply in my own life, and I hope you enjoy it as well. And with that, let's get into it. Today's episode is brought to you by CNC Resourcing. Dana at CNC provides one-on-one business coaching, customized training seminars, as well as continuing education around creating safe spaces for transgender and gender non-binary folks. Dana is actually who I use as my business coach, and I would recommend her to anybody who's looking for some help jump-starting their business or just looking for some pointed tips on how to take their business to the next step. You can check them out at ccresourcing.us or check out the link in our show notes. Hey, Dr. Marshall, good morning. Good morning. Really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. There's a lot I'd like to cover with you today, especially understanding your your clinical experience, specifically around suicide, some of the research that you've done, and your role now with AFSP. Um, before we get too deep into any of uh, any of that, there is a question that I like to start with: understanding that um, as well, you are a survivor of suicide loss. I know you lost your fiance at the time to suicide in, in 1995. Um, so kind of with, with that in mind and starting there, I was hoping you could share with me what you would say are some of the most important things you learned either from your fiance or specifically from losing them to suicide. Yeah, well, I, I, it's a really great question. Thank you for uh, acknowledging that. So like you mentioned, I uh, my fiance died by suicide in 1995. And he struggled with depression at the time. But I think one of the things I learned is, well, maybe a few things. One is that depression um, is very real. And people who struggle with thoughts of suicide, there, there's an intensity to their pain that I think I didn't have a full appreciation for until that experience. You know, I knew that he was struggling. I knew he was depressed. But I think losing him to suicide gave me a fuller picture of just how profound that struggle is. The other thing I would say is that I think 
maybe what I didn't fully understand before he died is that, you know, the, the kind of impulse uh, to act on suicidal thoughts really comes in an intense, short moment for people. And so, you know, since then, and this is consistent with my own experience, you know, he was somebody that I'd had a conversation with not long before he died. There was nothing in the conversation that made me think that moment was worse than moments he had had before. So, you know, I think it gave me an appreciation for how people sometimes go on functioning in their lives with no clue to those around them um, that that moment is their worst moment. And, you know, it makes it from somebody who's been in prevention for a long time, it's a little scary, right, to know that somebody could be really struggling and we may not be cued into that in the moment where it's the worst for them. Yeah, very, very well said. So it sounds like you were aware at the time that he was struggling. It sounds like depression was definitely in the picture for him. Was there any point leading up to his death that you thought that that was a viable option for him? Is that a, either a conversation you ever had with him or something you were just you know, afraid of in seeing him go through his experience of dealing with depression? Yeah, I think one of the things that's important to note was that, and he had shared this with me, that he had a previous suicide attempt in his history. Um, we had talked about that. That was not something that was a taboo subject. And, you know, I mean, I was studying, I was in graduate school to be a mental health professional. So it's kind mm -hmm. of one of the things that, you know, I would hope was okay to talk about. And it was for us. You know, so I always had that kind of in the backdrop, like, okay, this is something, you know, he's experienced, he's had depression on and off throughout his life. Okay, like, that's an understanding, just like it would be for any other health issue that people experience, right? I think what I didn't have an appreciation for was that when he at the time said that he never saw himself uh, doing that again, like that, I believed that that was a statement he could make with certainty, I think what I know now is that, you know, th that that changes for people. And, you know, I, I think I under have a new appreciation for how when people say I can't guarantee I'll never do it. I understand what that means, because I do believe in that moment he really believed he would never do it. And then as things changed for him, as his depression got worse, you know, as those kind of factors came together in a bit of a perfect storm, then I think it became back on the table again. Um, so, you know, I say that only to say that I appreciate that this is a very unpredictable course for people. And for those of us that have lost someone, I think many of us talk about those moments where they believed they would never do this again, or they promised us or guaranteed with the certainty they had at the time. And looking back, I realized just like we can't guarantee an outcourse with cancer or any other physical illness, this is another one we can't guarantee a course for. We hope for the best, we apply the best treatments, but we don't have guarantees. And that's a hard part being in prevention to know that. Absolutely. Yeah, and just in the very little training that I've had in college, I took a, a short course around suicide prevention for my role as a resident assistant. Um, an RA on campus. 
And one of the things that really stood out to me in that training was if you're having a conversation with someone who is presenting as dealing with, you know, suicidal intensity or ideation, to not ask them to promise that they won't do it as you step out to get for, you know, get help or, or pull in another resource. And I didn't really understand why at the time I thought that might be a good idea, you know, to make sure. Um, but it, it makes sense to me now is that's not a promise I think any one of us can make that that's something we won't do because we don't know what the intensity of that moment may feel like. And you talk about how this was a learning experience for you in how intense that moment can be for someone. I know there's some research that came out of, I believe, Florida State University, uh, maybe about 10 years ago, where they, they found three prominent factors in individuals who had survived suicide attempts. And one of those things that led them to the point of attempting suicide was a period of crisis that lasted for about an hour which was pretty fascinating to me. Um, this doesn't have to be something that is methodically thought out over the course of weeks or months. It could be a period of crisis in an hour where when combined with other factors is intense enough to seem like suicide is the only viable option. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think what's important to recognize is that people have different trajectories on, on this pathway. So some people have thoughts of suicide and never really have an intense urge to act on them, right? They have those thoughts maybe daily for a long time, but it never gets to a point for them where that switches to action. And then we should remember that for some people, those that period of thinking is pretty short too. But I think what you're saying is not only right, but I've even read some studies that talk about how the interval is shorter than that inside 30 minutes for a lot of people. And, and if substances are involved, it can be even shorter than that. So, you know, you're really referring to something that comes on with a lot of intensity for someone, even when they may have had thoughts over, over a period of time and not acted on them. There's something that changes in that moment for them, whether it's a, an escalated crisis, whether it's, um, just that there's a change and we're, you know, we're still trying to understand what happens in that moment for someone that's different from someone who in, their thoughts never get to a point where they act on them. Yeah, def definitely a great point. This is somewhere I was hoping to go later in the conversation, but it feels relevant to bring it up now. I, I think uh, where prevention is right in this moment and with things like the zero suicide model um, and the move to try to reduce suicide to being something that doesn't happen. I'm wondering what your take is on the notion that all suicide is preventable and that we can get to a place where we can live in a world without suicide. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, my feelings about it is I think it's an aspirational goal and one worth striving for, certainly. But I also think just like we we would have a hard time imagining a zero cancer rate, right? And we'd love it, you know, certainly as somebody who's worked in prevention for most of my career, I would love for that to be the case, that there were no suicides. I also know that we are not at a place where we have, um, where prediction is an exact science, right? Um, if we could administer a blood test and know with certainty this person is going to die by suicide in the next week versus someone else, we certainly would be at a better chance of getting to that zero suicide rate. But I do think we have to hear the voices of lost survivors who have said to us for a long time that 
they did everything they could and this was still the outcome, right? The person did get to treatment. You know, people die sometimes when they're hospitalized. So, you know, I think the goal of zero suicide is to not have people fall through the gaps through to, due to either problems in the healthcare system, lack of access to treatment. You know, I think the idea is we're gonna do everything we can to prevent this and strive to that zero suicide. But I also think we have to recognize that our science isn't there yet. Um, and that the best time to try and prevent a suicide is way upstream, right? Before yeah. the person is in that moment of crisis. Um, because that's really, you know, really trying to bend people's trajectory away from that as a path. So, um, you know, just to echo what you just said, I think it's really challenging. It's certainly challenging for lost survivors to hear things like zero suicide and to think, well, you know, was my loved one's suicide preventable? And the reality is we don't know for sure. We like to think it probably was at some point, but we don't know that for sure because I personally don't believe all suicides are preventable. I think our science isn't there yet. Doesn't mean we're not going to try, though. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's a great answer, and it, it takes into consideration kind of where I was coming from with that question is is when I hear that all suicide is preventable. From my own experience, it makes me wonder. Okay, well then, what did we miss with my dad? what what combination of things would have prevented that from happening and i don't think that's necessarily what it's saying I, I think what it's saying is exactly what i just heard you say which is that we are going to do everything we possibly can to intervene and to prevent this from happening at the rate that it currently is yeah i mean when you think about it when you think about even just mental health the, the numbers are something like only two out of five people actually get treatment, right? I think those numbers are changing. But again, you know, when we think about getting people access to evidence-based treatments, treatments that have shown to have an impact on suicidal thoughts, for example, you know, there's still lots of people who won't, act, won't have access to those treatments. So that's where I think our zero suicide efforts matter in terms of scaling evidence-based treatments in terms of making sure people aren't falling through the gaps, for example, when they present an emergency room with a suicide attempt, making sure there's follow-up. Those things are crucially important. And I think that's why we strive for perfection in that, right? It doesn't mean yeah. we're going to prevent every suicide, but we don't want people to die because the system failed them. I love that. Yeah, that very, very well said. I do have a follow-up question on that, but before we get too deep down the rabbit hole, I think it would be helpful for folks listening to understand a little bit more of your backstory. So I think what we've covered so far is it's 1995, uh, you're in school to become a mental health counselor, your fiance dies by suicide. Uh, I'm wondering what the period of time after that looked like for you. Did it shape um, or change the path or trajectory that you were on. And, um, and I'm wondering how that led to where you are today, uh, being involved with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Could you share a little bit about your backstory there? Absolutely. Um, so in 1995, I was in a, a, a master's degree program uh, to become a mental health counselor, like you said. I think I had imagined my trajectory at that time was that I would either um, go into substance use counseling, um, or I would be a college campus counselor. I think those were kind of 
career paths I had envisioned for myself. And then when my fiance died by suicide, um, I think both the, con and I was on practicum at the time. So that's probably, I was finished with my coursework, but um, I was actually in clinical training at the time he died. And I think what frightened me the most was that how, in terms of from a, um, a training, being a training, a counselor in training at the time was that how little I knew about suicide. And I think I had this misperception that the fields I was going into, the subfields, I wouldn't be dealing with, with suicide that much. Like, I think there was still this perception, not only in the world, but I think even in, in um, academic graduate programs at the time, that suicide was this very rare occurrence that, you know, it was kind of limited to the most um, the most severely mentally ill folks, like there was a, a very distorted perception. And if that perception didn't exist, I certainly wasn't trained to think differently. And I don't think that was a fault of my training program. I just think this is where things were in 1995. And so it kind of um, set me on a quest to kind of understand not only to help my own healing, but I think also because I was scared. I thought if this could happen in my personal life, it can happen anywhere. You know, you have this sense of suddenly everyone around you that has a story is telling it to you because you've just had this loss. Um, and maybe you experienced something similar, Rob, but um, so I wanted to understand. And then the more I tried to understand and learn, um, the more I realized not many people were doing that, <laughs> that this was still a conversation that was had in quiet rooms. Um, I knew clinicians who had had family members who died by suicide and nobody around them knew that it was something they were ashamed to talk about. And so it kind of set me on a journey that then really developed into um, a path a professional path. And in 2000, I went back for a PhD. I did a practice as a while I worked in community mental health. And I could tell you, I, I suicide was something that was a daily conversation. So any perception I had that it wasn't going to touch me professionally was really um, in big error. Um, so I am now a licensed psychologist. I have, my clinical work has spanned a lot of different things. I've done everything from private practice to community mental health, worked in university counseling centers. So I've kind of, I've been across a number of clinical environments. And I was actually in an academic environment where I was training other counselors uh, when I uh, decided to, to work full time for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which has been uh, just such a privilege to really be on the, what I think of as the front lines of trying to solve this problem and try to figure out what we could do in communities to help people understand suicide better. Yeah. What year was it that you first got involved with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention? Well, it's a really interesting story um, because I, I got involved as a volunteer uh, not long after uh, my fiance died. I, I'm going to guess it was probably within the first, I'm going to guess it was about 1997. I was actually helping with a, a Survivor Day event at the time um, where I lived, a local event. And um, that was my first experience. I helped uh, helped support the day, the event, you know, all the things volunteers do. I led a support group during that event. And so 
you know, I, I say all that only to, to say, no, I don't think I had any um, special, um, you know, unique training at that point. I think I just had a willingness. And at that time, there were few people who were raising their hands saying, I want to help. Uh, now it's different, right? I mean, here we are, uh, it, 2023, AFSP has chapters in all 50 states. At the, that time, I was lucky to live in a state that had a chapter. Um, and so things have gotten much bigger. There's a willingness in the world that there wasn't at that time. But I'm grateful that, you know, at, at that time, I had the awareness to connect to something that was obviously really important to me, but also a big concern in the world. We just weren't recognizing it in the same way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, an organization that is uh so heavily influenced by its volunteers, it's really cool to hear that that's how you got started. Um, I've currently been involved in that capacity as well. And I feel like a baby almost <laughs> when it comes to my knowledge around this issue. But I feel like all I have is my willingness to, to learn and to try to be helpful. Uh, being involved with the Healing Conversations program, um, helping plan our, our Out of the Darkness walk in Western North Carolina this year. Um, so really cool to hear that's, that's where it started for you. Can, can you tell me a little bit about how that evolved from being um, involved with volunteering in 1997 to where you find yourself now as the VP of Mission Engagement, being heavily involved with partnering with organizations to help them with how they train about suicide and suicide prevention? Yeah, well, one of the things that I think is is a real benefit of having some longevity with any with any issue, right, but particularly with this one, is that it became really clear to me um, at some point that we were, um, the way I like thinking, we were preaching to the choir in suicide prevention, that those of us that were working in the field all agreed this was an important issue that needed more national attention. But I think the, what the last, I would say, five to seven years have really shown is that other groups have an interest in this issue, whether you're a workplace, whether you're the government, whether you're, you know, the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts troop, like there's other people that have a stake in this issue. We're all impacted by suicide. We all have a role to play. We all know someone. Um, so I think what's changed for me is that the last few years, you know, and I say last five to seven, we've really started to bring in other groups to talk about this. Um, and a lot of the partnership work at AFSP, you'll see, is about that. Um, for myself, the trajectory was kind of interesting. I um, I did a little volunteering. I wouldn't say I did a lot of volunteering. Again, I was still pretty early in my, my own grief trajectory. So I was still working through my own things. <laughs> um, and around the year 2000, I happened to move to Atlanta and connected um, with... Iris Bolton, who runs um, or, or who she's the director emeritus of the uh, Link uh, National Resource Center for Suicide Prevention. And that was one of the first centers in the country that uh, focused on suicide loss. And I actually went to work for her. And it's kind of a funny story. I had uh, moved to Atlanta. I took another job. I started I went to a support group there and started talking to some folks and they're like, we're looking for an associate director. Do you know anybody? And I said, no, anybody. I, that, yeah, exactly. But I just took this other job. 
And um, I will say that the, the other job I had taken, I'd been there six weeks and very graciously, I went to my supervisor at the time and said, I have an oppor opportunity to do the work that I've always wanted to do, like since losing my fiance, and I hope you can support me doing it. And, and she did. And in fact, she's still a good friend to this day. But that work, working, so I had a clinical, I, I saw clients, I ran support groups, I, I ran an outreach team. So I was one of the, we had a very similar team to uh, Healing Conversations that covered uh, locally here. And so doing all those things just really brought me closer to the loss side of this issue. And I spent about five years doing that. Um, it's also, I, I, to learn under somebody who lost their son in the seventies and really, you know, could tell me about what things were like then. It also gave me an opportunity, I think, to get introduced to others who were doing the work both nationally and locally. And so all of those things, it's a complicated story to say, this has always been an issue that I, I hoped would get the attention it's getting today. And it's really, it's really uh, affirming to hear folks like yourself who are involved in the work and in, in supporting others in addition to having had the experience you've had. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's something so powerful about that. At least I've noticed that in my experience, being able to bring my, my lived expertise to the table. I, I don't know that I would be able to understand or connect to this issue in the way that I have without that. So I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the training that you've done specifically, because I think there, there are a few people, at least when I, when I think about it, that pop into my head on being on the leading edge of training about suicide. Um, obviously, you know, Dr. Jack Jordan comes to mind, Dr. Julie Serrell, who I'm meeting with later this week, uh, Dr. Melinda Moore, who we had on the podcast recently. And I view you as being kind of right at the epicenter of that. And I think you've done some really fascinating work with um, being able to train other clinicians, be able to train employers, be able to train teachers. I mean, I think the list goes on and on um, with folks that you've worked on training to not just understand and recognize uh, when someone may be presenting as having suicidal intensity, but how to how to deal and cope and support when a suicide does happen in those environments. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the groups and organizations that you've partnered with and trained and how maybe that training is nuanced and different amongst the different groups? Yeah, well, I'll take the second part of your question first because I think it's an important, I think both are important, but I, I would like to talk a little bit about that. So, um, and the folks that you mentioned, I hold in very high esteem. Um, they are also my go-tos in terms of the field and, I've had some very rich conversations with them and served on work groups with them. So great lineup there that you mentioned. We're doing really great work. I would say for myself, um, so maybe to take a step back. Um, so when I went back for my PhD, uh, the area I focused on in um, my dissertation research was talking to loss survivors about their experiences following the loss with professional audiences. And that was pretty wide. It, it was a qualitative study, but it was a pretty wide range. So I asked them about 
Tell me about your interactions with clergy or faith-based leaders. Tell me about your interactions with law enforcement, with coroner offices, um, funeral homes. You know, just wanted to hear like the people that had some professional role here. Tell me how they interacted with you. Tell me what felt good about those interactions. Tell me what was difficult about those interactions. And what I found um, that's probably not dissimilar from what others have found since was that it's a pretty mixed bag, meaning that, you know, certainly we hope everyone um, responds with compassion, right? But the understanding of what that feels like for someone who's in that space of just having lost someone, um, really, there was a wide range, right? Everything from folks who thought of this as kind of just another death, um, to folks who responded to them in ways that to this day either have felt like um, key moments of compassion or key moments of ignorance, right? And I say that knowing that we all do the best we can, right? Um, but this is where training matters, I think. And so one of the areas that I've been really interested in um, is helping folks who respond to a suicide loss understand that there's lots of things that inform that lost survivor's experience. And that while there's some things that are universal, I think, or relatively universal, there's a lot of things that may make that lost survivor's experience different. For example, if the person's had a history of trauma, um, this can feel more traumatic or can, can stir trauma other traumatic losses, right? Um, if they've had an experience where this has been a long struggle with their loved one. You know, um, they may have different feelings or emotions. I'll never forget, um, I ran a support group many years ago where a woman had come to my group and she was having a really hard time connecting with what others in the group were feeling because the person who died was a perpetuator of abuse for her for a, a number of years. Mm -hmm. And while she was still devastated by the loss, this was not the outcome she had hoped for anyone, including that person. There was a lot of mixed feelings as you might guess. So I say all of that because I do think sometimes those that respond aren't aware that there could be a lot happening in that moment for someone. And what, what they think of as routine or just doing their job can really feel differently to the to a suicide loss survivor. Um, I had a family tell me one time the experience of, of having to sit in the back of a police car while their home was being treated like a crime scene, for example, it left something with them that it's hard to undo, right? And so... I, I don't say that to vilify anybody who's doing their jobs, except to say, and this goes to the first part of your question, that training matters, that whether we think of it as sensitivity training or just understanding suicide better, I think we can go a long way to helping suicide loss survivors by better equipping those that are going to respond. Yeah, that's that's a that's a fantastic answer. And I, and I know some of those groups that you've partnered up with that were definitely interesting to me were, I know D.A.R.E. stood out as one, um, the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Um, I think you've done some work with the Veterans Administration as well. What, what are some of the nuances in, in training those groups? You know, some things that stand out uh, as being important that you would touch on with one group versus another. Yeah, well, I think 
with all groups, you know, we want them to see their role in suicide prevention in addition to understanding loss, right? We want them to say, hey, I have a stake in this too. And chances are pretty good in any given audience, you are talking to someone who has lost someone, who has supported someone who struggled or who's struggling themselves. The numbers just point to that. And so when you talk about groups like the Veterans Administration, or DARE, or even the National Shooting Sports Foundation, they are coming into contact with this issue, whether they're aware of it or not. And so I think some of the nuance, though, is helping people see what their role is, right, when they might intersect with someone who's lost someone. So in the um, National Shooting Sports, one of the things I found working with them is that while they might come into contact, so they, if you don't know who NSSF is, they are, they represent the industry of range and retail owners, um, gun range and retail owners. So while they might interact with folks who are trying to purchase a gun to end one's life, that would certainly be one area. More often, they come into contact with people throughout their day-to-day work, right, who have been impacted by this issue, who are supporting someone. And so it became an opportunity to raise awareness, but also to help them see their roles. So talking to them about the number of gun deaths that are suicides, for example, really was an eye-opening moment, I think, for them to say, hey, not only is this a role, a, an issue we can, we have a role in, but it actually makes up a substantial part of the what I think of as the unintentional or the, or the um, non-accidental, but also um, uh, gun deaths that no one wants to have happen. That's probably the best way to say it. So even among uh, range and retail owners, that the thing they want the least is for someone to have access to a gun as a through a connection to their retailer range establishment and then to go on to die by suicide with that gun. So they had a a vested interest in this too. I think they weren't as aware of how often gun deaths are suicide deaths. And so that became a really important piece of training, but also of learning for them. You know, with an organization like DARE, they're in the schools. So we know, you know, particularly the high school years, these are a time, time when suicide attempts are happening and it's an opportunity to also get upstream, right? To connect uh, teens to mental health support and to do those things. So it's really also about helping them respond to teens in a way that took the the, um, suicide attempt seriously. Uh, You know, there's this kind of prevailing myth that I still hear about attempts being for attention. And I, I wish we could all kind of lose that and understand that if it is to get your attention, it's because the person needs help <laughs> and that that's an important way of, of responding, that this is something that should be met with compassion, but is also a health event that needs uh, medical attention and needs uh, our compassionate support. Absolutely. Yeah. And in hearing about partnerships with organizations like DARE, I think that just is becoming even more and more important with the uh, recent stats that came out from the CDC around suicide, uh, you know, quite a few things in there were uh, alarming and, and hard to read. For me, one of those at the top was just the amount of young people that, that have 
been dying by suicide and how that number increases, um, where not even just high school students, but even even earlier than that. So I think getting involved with uh, organizations like DARE, and I think there are some really great foundations out there, um, like Mission 34 and the Matias Rosado Foundation that are partnering with schools um, and with children of all ages. I, I think that's, you know, increasingly important. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that there's work being done there. Um, you said something that definitely resonated with me, which was, you never know, you never know in your day to day encounters, when you are coming across someone who has lost a loved one to suicide or dealt with their own lived experience around suicidal intensity that's definitely you know something i've come to learn and it's it's made me um just be cognizant of the way that i talk about suicide the way that i talk about losing my dad because the amount of times i've talked about it thinking i'm unique or i'm the only one in the room and then have been met with me too you know um it's 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 more often than not that i have that experience of being able to connect with someone who has at least some sort of experience involving suicide and, and on an episode we did with dr amanda mcgow who's an awesome awesome person she uh she was talking about some of the um some of the stigma or i guess some of the uh motivation that exists in the clinical clinical space to try to avoid patients who are dealing with suicidal intensity. And something she said that I thought was so profound and really resonated with me, which is whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, you are probably sitting across from someone who has felt suicidal at some point in their lives. Um, so it's not really something that, that can be avoided. Um, and, and I'm wondering if, if you could share a little bit about that from your clinical experience. I know that, you know, um, working with someone who may be dealing with suicidal intensity has to be incredibly challenging. And I imagine there's pressure that comes along with it. I'm, I'm wondering if you could give any insight um, into that based on your own clinical experience and what it would be like to lose a client to suicide maybe versus losing a loved one. Yeah. I, it's a great question. And I would say for myself, one, um, you know, I, I agree with the statement that I think even within our field, there's still a lot of clinicians, I think it's getting better, but still a lot of clinicians that are afraid to ask. And, you know, I, I don't understand that now, but at the time before I lost my loved one, I, I can imagine that it's really scary. Like, there became something, and I think a lot of um, clinician survivors talk about this, because for me, losing someone to suicide, I think made me a better clinician, because it was like, okay, I get that this can happen. This is very real. I get that this happens in good families. This happens when people are loved, that this is very much part of an illness that's a health issue, just like any other health issue we experience. And so it, it kind of helped me, I think, approach it that way, you know? So for me, working with people who are struggling, um, it feels very um, similar to working with folks that are struggling with other things, addiction. And, you know, it's kind of, you want to understand the struggle, right? You want to understand where this person's pain lies and as much as possible, you know, you want them to, to get what they need, 
right? And we talk a lot about safety planning in um, clinical work. Um, you can't do a safety plan with someone unless you're willing to go there with them, right? Yeah, yeah. Unless you're willing to talk openly. And when I was in private practice, I, I would tell people I, I was a lot of people's second and third therapist, meaning they had gone to other folks and I would hear things all the time. Like, you know, you're the first person that ever asked me if I had thoughts of suicide. And I think, you know, that we're really doing people a disservice if we're afraid to ask. Um, now, I won't say is so just before I, I applaud myself too much for being brave to ask. I will say every time I ask, I, I there's a lump in my throat and not because I'm afraid as much as that I know how difficult that is for the person sitting across from me, right? Like I have a real appreciation for if they are experiencing that, we are on a difficult journey together, right? Yeah. It's one though I, I'm always willing to take with them. I think I also um, have kind of, I don't know. I, the way I like to say it is kind of made peace with myself that I will, I will do everything I can, but I can't make someone want to live right. That I will help them as much as I can, but that I may do everything a clinician knows to do and they may die by suicide. And I think as soon as I was able to accept that, and also help the person know, like, I'm in this with you. And I also can't do this for you. You know, we can do things together. But at the end of the day, therapy works, because the person who's in therapy makes it work, right? It's not that therapists have some magic wand. It's that we're the guide, but they're the ones on the journey. And so I think once I made peace with, I would do everything I could do. But I also know that sometimes people die. And that's an unfortunate health outcome here. Um, it made me a little less fearful to go there with people because I knew I was fully in, I was fully committed. And I also knew I had no complete control over the outcome. Mm. Very, very, very well said. Um, there, there is something I want to double back to um, on the training front. It's a particular resource that I know you were involved in putting together, which is uh, for schools. Um, it's a postvention toolkit. I think it's called After a Suicide. Um, and it's meant to help schools in all the various aspects that that come around losing a student to suicide, how they can effectively respond. And, and some of the things you talked about in that toolkit were the, the ideas of suicide contagion, which is something I, I definitely want to talk with you about. Um, you talk about social media in that toolkit. You talk about memorialization and how to memorialize those who have died by suicide. First, I just want to express my gratitude for your involvement in putting that together. Um, I think it's something that is immensely important and powerful. And I'm hoping you could tell me a little bit about that toolkit, how it came to be, and and how you see it being used today. Yeah, well, the toolkit existed as a resource, um, and we revised it the last uh, couple of years. Um, and the revision, I think, what was really important about the revision was that we had heard that the original toolkit had gotten a lot of use, but there were still things that schools needed to feel like they could do this, to respond in a way that where they felt confident. And they talked about needing more information on contagion and memorialization and um, culturally appropriate responses to grief. And 
you know, one of the things I think that became really important for schools is if you think about, you know, how the world kind of gets information nowadays, right? And I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent, stay with me. Um, schools were telling us that because of social media and because of how even students communicate nowadays, that a death would happen and the students knew about it before the school, right? Mm. Or so the time to communicate and to get a message out there that's helpful has, got, has gotten really short since the original uh, toolkit and now with the social media being so ubiquitous. So we wanted in the toolkit to give some things that schools could do right away, right? The moment they learn, um, the messages they can send out, because we know that schools have a role in shaping the conversation going forward. And, you know, I've been fortunate over my career to be involved in supporting schools after a loss. And I can tell you, it's always harder to come in later and try and do undo what wasn't done or uh, um, undo a message that wasn't effective. So the goal with the toolkit really was to give schools some tools that they could use right away. But it's I think toolkit's like 70 pages. So obviously yeah. we had a lot to say about it. Um, you know, but I, I think the important takeaway is to know there are some things that need to happen immediately, but supporting a school after a loss and supporting students is really kind of it's more than what you do in the immediate though you can't not do things in the immediate if you want to have a supportive response um i, I will say this um i i think about a story from a, a few years ago it's actually a number of years ago where a school had a death that happened over a long holiday weekend um the student had died outside of the school and by the time the, the students came back on Tuesday, all the students knew and the teachers and staff and faculty were scrambling, right? Like in terms of what do we say? What do we do? How do we support the students? And, you know, just to say like things happen so quickly in communication. And I worked with the school in trying to set that on a, on a better course going forward, but they were really feeling at a disadvantage because they had students the, the, the rumor mill one had gone rampant and there was a lot of misinformation out there. And so I say all of that um, because what I always hope schools will do is look at that toolkit before they ever need it. <laughs> yeah, um, because yeah. you can't, just like I said earlier, you can't predict when this is going to happen. When it does happen, the need to act quickly is there. Um, so I encourage schools to look at it, uh, you know, before they ever need it and to digest the information. Yeah, definitely loud and clear on how quickly a response is needed, I think, especially and as you touched on with social media being as prevalent as it is with younger populations. Um, I just heard this on an episode that we did a week or two ago where um, students on campus were finding out before the family even knew about losing their child or, you know, their friend to suicide. And I'm wondering if you have any any opinions on that or anything you'd like to share with social media being what it is, how you've seen that work as an advantage and also a disadvantage when it comes to kind of the full the full gamut of suicide from from prevention to intervention to response. Um, I feel like social media is involved in almost all three of those legs. And I'm wondering if you have any anything you'd like to share on that. Yeah, I mean, I think my my um, 
my feeling about this is that it's kind of a mixed bag. And I think we're learning a lot more about what that actually means. But, you know, just like there's a lot of misinformation that can be sent on social media, I think a lot of organizations are using social media for good, um, including AFSP. We have a very robust social media following. We put out Infor good information regularly. Um, I think there's a lot of storytelling that happens on social media, um, which, you know, we want to be done safely, but also reinforces this idea that none of us really are alone, that chances are if we're feeling something, someone else is feeling something similar. And so I think those are some of the ways that, you know, social media can be really positive in terms of promoting help seeking, connecting people to resources they wouldn't normally know about, getting good information out there. Um, on the flip side, I think because of the, the speed with which information travels through social media, it's very hard, I think, once information is out there, um, to kind of redirect it or even correct it. So, you know, even when there's been a suicide death by, you know, the social media trail, sometimes people who are further distance from the family, you know, in terms of closeness or geography, know before the people in the same town know, right? Or the people who are very close to the person, things travel very quickly. And, you know, I think for suicide loss survivors, it can complicate things because, I think they, they may feel that there's an expectation to say something on social media. And many of us that, that experience suicide loss, you know, are still kind of trying to figure, work it through and figure out like what exactly happened here. And yet there's all, there may also be dialogue about it happening on social media among people who knew the, the person who died. So I think it's a mixed bag. Um, you know, I certainly feel like when people can connect to through help through social media, it's some of the best that's out there, right? When people get that support or they post something and they get a flooding of support of you're not alone. We've seen it with our uh, Survivor Day Live. We do a Facebook Live on Survivor Day and just the comments that come in of people who are supporting each other. I mean, it's the best of social media in my mind, right? When people are really rallying to say, you're not alone and I've been through that too and you will get through this. But we have to be mindful the speed through which information travels can cause real challenges for people. Yeah, absolutely agreed. And, and you know, I also wonder about social media as, as a possible intervention tool. Um, I know over the years I've had friends who for one reason or another have been very open about sharing their struggles with uh, either ideation or with depression um, on this open platform. And often, I think, unfortunately, it's seen, as you described earlier, as attention seeking. Um, and I know, you know, when I'm thinking about these specific examples, that's how our friends were talking about it, like, oh, so and so is doing their thing again, rather than being able to flip the script on that and you know, so-and-so is being very open that they, they need help and support. Um, and I think that is something we can all take away is like being able to take these things seriously when people are telling us that they're feeling a certain way. Um, that I think that's one of the ways we can all be more involved in intervention and in finding folks help who may not be able to find that help on their own. Yeah. And I, I do think I want to say one more thing about that, that I think the onus really is on those of us that see the person struggling, whether it's openly on social media, they're posting things, 
to kind of lean in and say, you know, hey, I'm noticing something, right? Like not to ignore it, not to say it's just for attention. Because if you think about when someone is in that dark place, it is so difficult for them to see beyond that pain, right? And it really requires those of us around them to try and reach in. And, you know, if we expect that they're going to come up with an eloquent way to, you know, describe the pain that they're in, like we, we are asking too much. Sometimes yeah. it's all someone can do to type a post saying I'm not okay. Sometimes that's all they can muster themselves to do. And so, you know, I would love for anybody listening this to really kind of reframe that in your own mind. Like if someone is reaching out in that way, think about it as being the bravest thing they've done, you know, that not attention seeking, but really mustering up the courage to say, I need help. I'm struggling. I'm not okay. Mm, I love that. And, and to big, piggyback off of that, I think the onus is also on each of us to check in with those in our lives that we're concerned about. And the power that I've found in asking someone, how are you doing? Like, really, how are you doing? Not just like, hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Like, how are you doing? Are you okay? Um, do you need any support? And just opening the door for someone to be open and vulnerable with you, which is probably as uncomfortable as you described earlier as being a clinician doing that with a client. It's uncomfortable to do that with with someone in our lives. But in my own experience of having done that, I've had some incredibly heartfelt, rewarding conversations where I've been able to connect on the deepest level with someone that I care about. Yeah. And I think that what you said that's so important is always, always, it should be with an expression of care. You know, so it's, I'm asking because I care about you, right? I'm asking because I can see things don't seem okay. And I'm worried about you, right? To kind of lean into that. Because I do think we've gotten so much as a society used to asking, how are you? I'm okay. And we don't lean deeper. Or we ask, um, and the person who's being asked may feel like, oh, this person is, is asking in a way that they're not genuinely concerned. You know, this is our opportunity to let people know we're a safe person to talk to. And I think taking that extra or going that extra uh, mile to say, you know what? If now's not a good time, I'm always here. You can call me anytime. You know, we can talk about this when you're ready. You know, just signals to the person, hey, I'm okay to talk to you about this. I'm not going to judge you or or look away or talk to someone else about your problem. I am here to help you. I think the more we can convince people that we're safe to talk to, the easier it will be when they feel like they can reach out to reach out to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like this is really where the rubber meets the road when it when it comes to prevention and intervention and at the risk of belaboring the point. I think this is really helpful stuff. Um, and for folks who are listening, um, I'm wondering if if we could brainstorm or if you have any prompts that you feel are helpful um, for someone who is concerned about someone in their lives, they want to check in with them, but they may not have the language to support doing so. What's what's a way I could check in on, on someone that I care about? Yeah, well, first thing I would do is I, I would try to do it privately with the person. So, you know, I don't think it's, I mean, I think it's less effective to kind of, you know, call somebody out on what you're noticing in, in a, at a time when they may feel too vulnerable to share it, right? So like, you know, 
it's talking to them privately. I think it's saying things like, you know, I've, I, I've noticed you don't seem like yourself lately, or I've noticed you have, you seem to have a lot going on. You seem more stressed than usual, whatever the thing you're noticing is. I, I think it's helpful to just say, Hey, I, I've noticed this. Um, and I care about you. And I know sometimes when people are feeling these things, they may even have thoughts that they don't want to be here anymore or thoughts of ending their life. I wonder, are you having those kinds of thoughts? You know, ideally you would listen, right? You would start by saying, you know, notice there seem to be some things going on with you. I'd love to, you know, I'm here to talk to you about it. I'd love to listen. Um, I'm here to support you. But to not be afraid to ask directly if they're having thoughts of suicide, because I think that's where a lot of people stop short, right? Like they hear the person talking about feeling hopeless. They hear the person talking in kind of statements of things don't seem to be getting any better, or this is the worst I've ever felt, or I'll never get through this. And then they stop short of asking the hard question, which is, you know, with everything going on, are, are you having thoughts of wanting to end your life? Are you having thoughts of suicide? You know, to me, it doesn't matter whether you say the word suicide or not, but what you're trying to ask is, has this person gotten to a point in their thinking where they can't see any any other way forward, right? That they're thinking of ending their life. And then I think when, the, if they respond in the affirmative, then I think that's your opportunity to kind of really listen, to say, I want to hear more about that. You know, and to not say don't feel that way or not say, you know, right. you've got everything to live for all, all the other platitudes we tend to do when we're when we're uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. But to say, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about that, but I want to hear more about that because I care about you. I want to understand, you know, what asking questions like when did you notice those thoughts started? Like, when did it start to feel that like that? You know, just getting really curious is the way I think about it. Because I think the more information that you have, the better than when you connect, help connect that person to help, right? Um, you can tell them like, look, with everything you're telling me here, I'm thinking this might be at the point where we want to involve somebody who has some training, you know, or we want to uh, see if a mental health person can help here, or we want to call 988 together and see, you know, like, I think there's things... If you, you can't offer help if you don't understand really what's happening. And I think the way we understand is by listening. That being said, I, I don't think anyone should take it on themselves. I always say the best handling of a crisis is diffusion of responsibility, meaning you bring other people in. <laughs> you mm. don't say, I'm going to keep this secret and no one will ever know. And I'm the only one you should ever call or whatever, right? You, you say we need to bring some other people in here. Who else do we trust? Who else can we talk to? Can we bring in a mental health professional? Because I think if you take it all on yourself, that's a huge burden to carry. And the person is best helped when more than one person can support them. Um, I don't know if that answers what you were asking, Rob, but I, I do feel like finding a way to gently ask directly about suicide um, is really the way forward. And saying, commenting on what you notice and that you care. And that's why you're asking. Yeah, no, I think that's a great answer. Um, and exactly what I was looking for to take that a step further. And I'm, I'm trying, I'm not trying to play hardball with you here. I do think I, I've had some similar conversations in my life and the way at least one of them has gone has been, I've asked the hard question. They've responded in the affirmative. 
we've talked about it and then it comes to the inevitable end of that conversation and what i'm wondering what you do if you're if you're met with i don't want to go to the hospital i i'm not interested in getting help and now i have the burden of having this information that my loved one is having thoughts of suicide and they have expressed not feeling interested in getting the help that i think might be helpful what what now yeah it's an important question and i think also one that many of us have experienced you know i, I certainly don't want to leave a message that if you just ask the person's going 100% of the time the person's going to get help and it's going to be an easy process it's almost never an easy process um i do think like I said earlier, we can't make anyone live or die. It's very hard to get someone to go to treatment if they're not interested in going to treatment. But the way I always think of this is you can plant some seeds. And that's really how I do think of this. You can make sure they have resources, right? You can say, well, look, I get it. This is not something you're interested in doing right now. Here's some resources if you change your mind, right? Or you can give them some numbers to counseling centers. You can give them the 988 number. Um, you can say, look, I'm happy to help you whenever you feel ready to do that. I'm happy to go with you to an appointment. I'm happy to help you look up <laughs> numbers. Like whatever the thing is, I think just letting them know you're an ally in this, that you want to support them. Because there'll always be the thing you said, and then there'll be what the person heard, right? And in that moment, they may not have been able to hear you need help, or I need, I want you to get help. But what they may have heard is that you're a safe person, that if I, if I want help, you're someone who will help me. And I think that's the best we can do. And I would say to not give up, you know, you don't have to like pester the person, but to not be afraid to check back, to not be afraid to say, you know, I've been thinking a lot about what we talked about. I'm wondering, you know, how you're feeling today. I'm wondering if you've had other thoughts since we spoke. Um, I think giving the person the resources, it's a little different if the person you're talking to is a minor. I do think you, you have a little more responsibility if you're an adult to make sure that a parent is aware or a trusted adult that will support them. Um, but if we're talking to another adult who you can't force to go to, to treatment, I think making sure they have the, the resources, because I, it's, I can't tell you how many times later someone said to me, even months later, someone said to me, you know what? I finally called those numbers you, you, you gave me. Mm. And I even forgot I gave them at the time, right? I just uh, resigned myself. This person's probably not going to get help. Um I'll check in with them. I'll love them. I'll support them, but they've got to do this. And then months later, I hear that they, they did use the resource. So to not give up, right? I think the other important piece, Rob, is we need to remember that while suicidal thoughts are an important indicator and we want people to get help at the first sign of that, many people live with suicidal thoughts day in and day out. Yeah. and do not go on to die by suicide. So we want people to get connected to treatment and support, but we also don't need to panic if the person is telling us, yes, I'm having these thoughts. We want to strategize with them on what's the best way to support them. And if they're not ready to get help, how do we best keep them safe? How do we check in with them regularly? We want to do all of those things. We want to make sure they have resources. Um, but we should also recognize that any given day, there are millions of people in the United States living with suicidal thoughts. Um, and that that alone doesn't mean someone will go on to die by suicide, but it's an important indicator 
that we should lean in and stay connected and and not be afraid to ask. Yeah, very well said and definitely a good reminder of just how prevalent this is and how many people at any given point are dealing with a very tough moment or possibly the worst moment they've ever had to deal with. Um, so being able to approach that with compassion is, I think, the least we can try to do for the folks that we care about. Um, I would love to have six, eight, ten hours to sit here and pick your brain. I am keeping an eye on the time and trying to be mindful of it. There is one more question I think I'd like to ask you and then give an opportunity for you to maybe share anything that we haven't touched on. Um, I, I know you've been heavily involved from a prevention and intervention standpoint. You've done work around postvention, so you really have kind of covered the full spectrum of how we address and respond to suicide. I'm wondering what you would say is missing. What uh, What's missing in the way that we are addressing suicide prevention or postvention? What gaps do you think there are and where do you think we can improve as a field? Boy, that's such a big question. And like you said, we could probably talk all day. Um, but if I were to pick three areas where I'd like to see us do better um, as a field and, and as people who are trying to prevent suicide, um, the first I would say is, um, you know, training, 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 uh, making sure that people understand um, about suicide, that they understand it as a health issue, but that they also understand they have a role to play. You know, unfortunately, there probably are not enough mental health clinicians in the world to solve a su the suicide problem. But yeah. caring people often intervene, and they're often the ones who can help someone get through a tough moment, a tough day. Um, so I would say lots of training for anybody who's open to receiving that information. Um, the other I would say is training that's a little bit more specific around evidence-based treatment. So, you know, in an ideal world, I would love for everyone who struggles profoundly with, with suicide to have access to evidence-based treatment, treatment that, that is shown to help them. Um, and while I think a lot can be done in all sorts of therapy, I know that, you know, we want to see progress, right? I mean, we want to see the person get helped um, in the way, the best way possible. So, so training specifically, training more clinicians on evidence-based treatments so people have access to the treatments that have been shown to help with suicide. Um, and then finally, and I think this is probably, you know, when you think about the, the big picture things here, just more people having access to care. So, you know, I know we have mental health parity in the United States. I know there's been challenges to being fully implemented. Um, you know, I know things like Medicaid expansion and these are important systemic issues that are gonna help bring more treatment uh, to more people. And so one of the things, you know, we do at AFSP is a lot of advocacy on the Hill and have made some great strides. But that work needs to continue because just like people, um, we want people to be able to get medical care for health issues. You know, we want them to get uh, mental health care when needed for mental health issues. And like I said earlier, the upstream piece of this is we want we want people to, to get that help long before they're in the moment of crisis. So while things like 988 are, are hugely important, we also need to fill the gaps on the other side of care, right? The way upstream when someone is first seeking mental health treatment to see that that treatment is covered, that they have 
access, uh, easy access to quality treatment is really important. Yeah, thank you. That's that's a great answer to a tough question. I, yeah, I realized it was a tough one. Um, before we wrap, I just I would like to give you the opportunity, Dr. Marshall, if, there, if there's anything we maybe haven't touched on or anything you'd like to share. Um, does that anything come to mind? I'm going to give a quick plug for AFSP. Um, if you don't know about the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, I would really encourage you to check out our website, afsp.org, or follow us on social media. Um, we put out a lot of important, good information that helps both those who are struggling um, with thoughts of suicide, those who are supporting someone, but but also those who have lost someone. We have a very um, rich community of people who are committed to uh, preventing suicide and doing what they can to alleviate the pain and the impact of it. Um, I will say this too, if you don't have to be a specially trained person to join one of our chapters, you just need a willingness to be involved. So find your local chapter, get involved, attend an event they're doing. We have chapters in all 50 states. And I think it's it's one thing you can do um, to help be part of the bigger solution in preventing suicide. Get involved. Excellent. Yeah, I think probably more than half of our episodes have the AFSP link in, in the show notes. I will also put it in this episode. Um, Dr. Marshall, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to join me and further really appreciate the work that you continue to do. It's immensely important. And it, it, I leave feeling comfortable today knowing that there are folks like you at the helm. So really, really thank you for the work that you do and, and for joining me today. Thanks for highlighting this important issue. Um, appreciate all that you're doing to help prevent suicide. Um, I'm happy to. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Marshall.